Welcome to Northwest by Night, Tales of the West Coast. Welcome to Northwest by Night. Today we're heading a little outside of the Pacific Northwest for a particularly interesting story. But it's also a little gruesome, so if you have younger listeners, or you prefer not to hear squeamish things, you might want to give this episode a miss. Today, we're talking about the Wendigo. At six foot three and 200 pounds, Swift Runner was a large, powerful man, and he stood a head taller than most men in northern Alberta during the 1870s. In his native Cree language, his name was Kaki Sikuchen, and he'd made a good life as a trapper. He was trustworthy and smart, too, and in addition to trading pelts with the Hudson's Bay Company, he assisted the Northwest Mounted Police as a guide. He was married and had six children, three boys and three girls, and he was well-known and well-liked by the people who lived around Egg Lake. His cultural group lived a nomadic lifestyle, following the herds of bison over the plains of central Alberta, but he was living in a time of huge turmoil and disastrous change for the Cree people. The bison were disappearing as white settlements sprang up across the landscape, and Swiftrunner's way of life was slipping away. The bison he'd relied upon to feed his family were now so scarce that a glimpse of a herd of ten made headlines in a local newspaper. In the throes of despair and self-loathing, he developed a taste for whiskey, and when he'd been drinking, Swift Runner became angry, volatile, and unpredictable. No longer as patient and reliable as before, he was fired from his guiding job with the Northwest Mounted Police, and as he spiraled farther and farther down, he gained a reputation for paranoia and violence. People began to avoid him. In the winter of 1878, with no job and no village to call his own, Swift Runner struck out into the wilderness. He took his family with him, his wife, son on the mountain, his children, his mother-in-law, and his brother, and they hiked into the Mackenzie Basin to a region called Tawatana to set up a campsite and live out the winter. It was only 25 miles from the nearest Hudson's Bay post, so it was private and remote, but not inaccessible. Now, winters in northern Alberta are hard. The snow falls in thick blankets over the still black forests. Nights go on forever, and the northern lights whisper and crackle amongst the silent stars. For months, no one heard a whisper from Swift Runner's camp, but when spring came and the snow melted into deep rivers and the green buds appeared on the trees, Swift Runner stumbled out of the woods to a Catholic mission in St. Albert. He was taken in by Father Hippolyte Leduc, and when asked what had happened, Swiftrunner said that his family hadn't been able to find any food, and one by one, they'd starved to death. But immediately, the priest was suspicious. For someone who had just survived a winter with no food, Swiftrunner looked surprisingly well-fed. Although he was cheerful enough during the day, he'd scream in the night, plagued by nightmares, and one afternoon he attempted to lead a group of children into the woods with him. Enough was enough. 
the priests alerted Police Superintendent Jarvis in Fort Saskatchewan, and on May 27, 1879, Swift Runner was arrested under suspicion that he had murdered his family. While he initially denied the accusation, his stories contradicted themselves, and finally Sergeant Richard Steele gathered a small party of officers to search the area of Tawatana. They clapped him in irons and ordered him to lead them to his winter campsite. Now, some sources say he tried to deceive them, and only complied when they offered him a noxious brew of tea and plugged tobacco. But other sources say he was very helpful and took them straight to the scene of the crime. And it was truly horrifying. Bones lay scattered everywhere, cracked in half and empty of marrow. Hanks of black hair hung from the trees. A pot of rendered fat sat next to the cold ashes of the fire. Nearby was a small pile of human skulls. One had a little moccasin stuffed inside, its beading left unfinished, and a needle and thread still stuck in the leather. The police had never seen anything so gruesome. But the Cree elders, who had long known Swift Runner, had a simple explanation. He was possessed by a wendigo. The Wendigo, um, plural Wendigoag, is a Cree word that means the evil that devours. They're supernatural giants possessed by an insatiable hunger for human flesh, and even though they appear starved and emaciated, they can never be satisfied, no matter how much they consume. If a person is overcome with greed or tastes human flesh, they risk becoming a Wendigo too. Now, the Wendigo appears in the folklore of the Algonquin-speaking people of North America, like the Cree, the Ojibwe, and Suto, the Nicaspi, the Mi'kmaq, and the Innu people. And the story provides a warning against cannibalism in an environment where starvation and long, cruel winters are not uncommon. Wendigoag were described as sallow and lanky with waxy skin and glowing eyes and a mouth full of cruel, sharp fangs. They smell of rotting leaves with a foul breath and a hissing voice. And they can mimic human speech to trick unwary travelers into their clutches. Unlike other predators, they aren't afraid to creep into a campsite and steal away sleeping campers. And with every meal, they grow larger and larger and more and more hungry. They're cunning and they're clever, with a human brain that's able to plan and scheme. But they're beast-like, too. When Dikoag moves silently over the landscape, so quickly that they appear like a shadow in the corner of your eye. A man becomes a Wendigo in one of four ways. He might be bitten by the Wendigo, much like a werewolf. He might be driven out of desperation to eat human flesh and then develop an unnatural, persistent craving for more. He might have an evil sorcerer cast a spell on him and curse him to become a Wendigo. Or he might dream of the Wendigo, and in that vulnerable state, his physical body becomes possessed by the Wendigo spirit and he wakes as a monster. In all cases, the transformation is gradual, with the victim showing more and more signs of his transformation. He becomes brooding and depressed, obsessed with his cravings, and spending more and more time alone. Sometimes the Wendigo spirit was cast out by forcing the victim to drink hot tallow, which would melt their heart of ice, but this would doubtlessly injure or kill the host, too. 
So in a small and isolated community, the taboo against a possible cannibal living in your midst is understandable. The Wendigo was a serious threat to social harmony, and people who exhibited symptoms were considered dangerous, unpredictable, and could be banished and ostracized even before they injured or killed someone. It must have been a painful, heart-wrenching form of self-defense to cast out a member of the family in fear for the group. Once the victim had succumbed to the need for human flesh, the only surefire way to destroy a Wendigo was to kill the possessed by strangulation and then burn the body until no bones remained. The Ojibwa are one of the largest indigenous ethnic groups in North America, and they live throughout Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and North Dakota. And they have an origin tale that goes like this. On the north shore of Lake Nipigon, there once lived a trapper named Windigo. During one fierce winter, when the air became so cold that it crackled and all the animals disappeared, Windigo was forced to go further and further from his cabin in search of food. He grew hungrier and hungrier as he hiked, but every night he returned to his home empty-handed. Finally, Half crazed with hunger and desperation, he drank a potion made from tree bark, and he prayed to an evil spirit for help. He laid down and had a dream, in which an evil spirit gave him a gift of supernatural powers. When Windigo awoke, the night was clear and cold, illuminated by a full moon. He still hungered, but his weakness and fatigue were gone, and a ferocious strength filled his body eyes blazing, he ran across the snow, all the way to a distant village. When he saw the small, sleepy houses, he let forth three blood-curdling, terrifying yells. The people of the village, stunned by the powerful yells, all fainted, and no sooner had they hit the ground than they were all turned into beavers. Windigo devoured the beavers, growing bigger and more powerful for each one, but his hunger couldn't be satisfied. He went searching for more villages to devour, but he was eventually stopped by a young man named Big Goose, who was transformed into a giant called Mishaba. They wrestled and struggled, and at last Windigo was defeated. Mishaba returned to his human form, and all of the beavers that had been eaten were restored to life and to their human forms too. As an aside, one of the first symptoms of being possessed by a Wendigo is a fascination and obsession with devouring plump, fat beavers, which some say taste an awful lot like human flesh. When Europeans began settling across North America and were confronted by stories of the Wendigo, they were quite understandably confused and terrified by the whole prospect. But their arrival also perpetuated an environment in which the Wendigo thrived. European settlement brought with it the destruction of hunting grounds, the disruption of nomadic routes, and the loss of the great herds of bison. And all of this led to hardship and starvation for First Nations people, which in turn fed the legend of the Wendigo. Today, the Wendigo mythology can be interpreted as a warning about the dangers of selfishness and overconsumption in a small, close-knit community. But to the Europeans, who were unaccustomed to living in such close proximity to nature, the Wendigo was a shadowy demon that haunted the dark and untamed forests. In 1910, 
The English author Algernon Blackwood wrote a novella entitled The Wendigo, which was published in a book called The Lost Valley and Other Stories. In the novella, a hunting guide named Defajo is possessed, and Blackwood describes the poor man like this. For the Defajo who sat huddled by the big fire, wrapped in blankets, drinking hot whiskey, and holding food in wasted hands, was no more like the guide that they had last seen alive than the picture of a man of sixty is like a daguerreotype of his early youth in the costume of another generation. Nothing really can describe that ghastly caricature, that parody, masquerading there in the firelight as Defajo. From the ruins of the dark and awful memories he still retains, Simpson declares that the face was more animal than human, the features drawn about in wrong proportions, the skin loose and hanging, as though he'd been subjected to extraordinary pressures and tensions. It made him think vaguely of those bladder faces, blown up by the hawkers on Ludgate Hill, that change their expression as they swell, and as they collapse, amid a faint and wailing imitation of a voice. Both face and voice suggested some such abominable resemblance. But Cathcart, long afterwards, seeking to describe the indescribable, asserts that thus might have looked a face and body that had been in air so rarefied that the weight of the atmosphere being removed, the entire structure threatened to fly asunder and become incoherent. So, while Canadian law might not have formally recognized the existence of the Wendigo, it couldn't ignore that Indigenous law accepted the reality of the evil spirit and contained methods to deal with the problem. For example, in 1907, a Cree man named Jack Fiddler claimed to have killed 14 Wendigoag in his lifetime. Fiddler, who was also known as, and I'm going to apologize for this because I'm hoping that I pronounced this right, <laughs> He was also known as Zawuno Giziko Gaobao, which means he who stands in the southern sky in the Sucker dialect of Oji Cree. So Jack Fiddler was 87 years old at the time of his arrest. He was a powerful shaman and healer, greatly respected, and at the beginning of the 20th century, the Sucker people were still living traditionally, without any government imposition. While the Hudson's Bay Company and local missionaries had heard stories about Fiddler's powers and the Wendigo legend, they considered it to be nothing more than superstition. But one of Fiddler's own brothers had become a Wendigo on an ill-fated trading expedition and had been killed to save the rest of the group, so Fiddler knew firsthand how difficult and devastating a Wendigo could be. His acclaim spread throughout the region. Sometimes a family would ask Fiddler to kill a possessed member, and sometimes the victim themselves would ask to be euthanized, according to the necessary rites of their culture. By 1907, the Northwest Mounted Police heard of Jack Fiddler's reputation, and they sent two officers to bring Canadian law to the Sucker people, and they arrested Jack and his brother Joseph, and charged both with murder. On September 30th, Jack Fiddler escaped captivity, but he was found later that same day, having hanged himself nearby. Now, Joseph Fiddler still went to trial. Eyewitnesses testified that Jack and Joseph were the ones who were usually asked to ease the suffering of the very sick. It was a traditional custom of their people. They'd been unaware of Canadian law, and their actions were not murderous, but acts of mercy 
done to protect the community. Still, Joseph was convicted and sentenced to death. His sentence was appealed, but the order to release him came three days after his death in 1909. Both fascinating and frightening, the Wendigo is more than just a fairy tale. It offers insight into a deep and complex history where different cultures clashed over the definition of murder, preservation, and consumption of goods. The Wendigo consumes and hoards, which is a grievous sin in a landscape where cooperation and group harmony equals survival. People like Jack Fiddler were tasked to take unsavory but necessary steps to protect their communities and the imposition of Canadian law had a difficult time reconciling their actions as merciful, beneficial, and perhaps even integral to the strength and security of the group. So, faced with the same monster in Swift Runner, what did Canadian law enforcement do? By August 1879, the trial for the murder of Swift Runner's family was underway, with six white jurors listening to his story of slaughtering and feasting upon his children. They were faced with embracing a folklore that they couldn't quite accept as real, but there was no doubt about his verdict either. After deliberating for only 20 minutes, the jury passed their verdict and Swift Runner was sentenced to death by hanging on December 20th. While he initially seemed pleased with this outcome, Swift Runner grew more and more repentant as the day of his execution drew near, and in the weeks between his trial and his death, he confessed fully all that he'd done in gruesome details, to Reverend Father Hippolyte Leduc. He admitted that hunting had been good at the beginning of winter, but eventually he'd been driven to kill their dogs, and once those had been eaten, he began to look with hunger upon his wife and children. He claimed he'd been pushed by the evil spirits, and all the devils had entered his heart. When the morning of his execution arrived, the weather was clear, and the temperature was a crisp minus 42 degrees. A group of 50 or so Cree elders and community members had gathered, and some played drums as Swift Runner was led to the gallows. Many had never seen a hanging before. For the Cree, hanging was a disagreeable way to die, fit only for dogs, and it was performed by tying a rope around the neck and then hoisting the victim upwards. Swift Runner was a gigantic man, and they wondered how such an act could even possibly be done. When the condemned man was led out upon the gallows, he thanked the police for their kindness and the fathers for their mercy. To the spectators, he admitted that he knew he'd done wrong. Then he turned to the executioner and scolded him for taking so long and keeping him waiting in the cold air. The trap door slammed open, the rope pulled taut, and Swift Runner became the first man legally executed under the jurisdiction of the Northwest Mounted Police. Northwest by Night is a production of Fox and Bee Studio. If you want to know more about the Wendigo or the trial of Swift Runner, or if you want to read Blackwood's novella, I'll put links on our website, northwestbynight.com. Today we're ending with the song Tofino by Sean Piggott, who also happens to do our sound production. Thanks for listening. Sleep tight. <laughs>